Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We're very lucky to have today's guest, Jonathan Carl, Chief Washington Correspondent for ABC News, who is the author of the best-selling new book, Betrayal, The Final Act of the Trump Show. Jonathan, welcome back to the Bulwark Podcast. Great to be here. I appreciate it. Okay, so before we get into all this, because there's there's a lot going on, a lot of breaking news, even as we're talking about uh, this, can I just play a soundbite for you? Sure. Okay, so uh, I am I am old enough to remember when Laura Logan was considered a really you know, respected journalist. Uh, she was at CBS. She did a lot of foreign correspondence. Now she's at Fox News, and I don't know whether they hand out pills, you know, red pills there, or whatever <laughs> it is. But I, I just have to play this soundbite because. Fox News aired her on this, it, going off on this rant, comparing Anthony, Dr. Fauci, Anthony Fauci, to Joseph Mengele, the notorious Nazi doctor. It, okay, I can't, I can't summarize it any better than this this insanity. Let's play it. And so in that moment, what you see on Dr. Fauci, this is what people say to me, that he doesn't represent science to them. He represents Joseph Mengele. What? Dr. Joseph Mengele, uh, the, doc, the Nazi doctor who did experiments on Jews during the Second World War and in the concentration camps. And I am talking about people all across the world are all, saying this the because the response from COVID, what it has done to countries everywhere, what it has done to civil liberties, the suicide rates, the poverty. It has obliterated economies. The level of suffering that has been created because of this disease is now being seen in the cold light of day, i.e. the truth. And people the see truth. that there's no justification for what is being done. I mean, my Jonathan. God. Yeah, so that's my reaction, too. It's a, And the reason I wanted to play it is before we get into the discussion about the, the January 6th and the big lie and everything, is how can we even have rational discussions when there's stuff like that out there? When when, I, when, a, when a major network broadcasts something like that. I, I, did you see Frank Luntz's response to this, by the way? I thought it no. was nice. It was like a PSA. Uh, he said, this is your regular reminder that being asked to help prevent the spread of disease during a pandemic is not comparable to the systematic targeting and murder of 6 million Jews. Uh, happy Hanukkah. Yeah, there's there, there's a distinction there. I mean, there's a slight, you know, uh, I mean, it's just, it, it, it is it is completely detached uh, from reality. And you're right, she was... I mean, I covered the Pentagon when she was uh, with CBS doing doing great work, it seemed, in you know covering the Iraq war. Uh, you know, she put herself right in the middle of it all. And I, I don't know what happens. I don't know how people who are people of, of, of success, people yeah. that, have, that have accomplished uh, good, even in some cases, uh, great things, uh, completely and totally lose their minds. But she is not alone. No, she's not alone. And, you know, I, I for many years stole Jonah Goldberg's line about um, the invasion of the body snatchers, watching people decide that they were going to become part of Trump world as invasion of the body snatchers. But but now it feels like that sort of window has moved and it, it refers to people who just lose their minds and, and, and who are willing to spout things like this. Not to mention, I mean, there there is some level of corporate responsibility, one would think. Uh, about uh, Fox News broadcasting some of this, it, it, it is it's depressing to watch her on and then watch some doctors that are, you know nodding their heads and okay, Jonathan, I just I just had to I had to I had to tee this up. So uh, congratulations on the book Betrayal: The Final Act of the Trump Show, uh, which uh, the Washington Post called a sobering, solid account of Trump's last year in office that sheds new light on how the man who lost the presidency 
nearly succeeded in overthrowing the 2020 election. So two questions to start off. First of all, the title, Betrayal. Whose betrayal are you referring to? Who did the betraying? It has, it has multiple elements. Uh, mm-hmm. First, Trump himself believes that those closest to him have betrayed him. And that was particularly striking when I interviewed him for this book, uh, particularly when I went down at a couple of interviews, but I did one in person at Mar-a-Lago. And his, he was, you know, it was a couple months after he left office. Uh, he actually looked pretty good. He had lost some weight. Um, he didn't, he wasn't like ranting and raving, but he was consumed with just this, this kind of venom, but it was almost a joyful venom, if, if you will, uh, mm. about Republicans. Uh, he went off on McConnell. He went off on Bill Barr. He went off, uh, even on Kevin McCarthy. Uh, he went off on, um, uh, uh others who had served in his cabinet, John Kelly, uh, uh Mattis. He, he feels that everybody around him, the people closest to him, not so much the Democrats, but the people that had been closest to him had betrayed him. So that was part of it. Uh, but then the, the, the real reason for the title, the primary reason for the title is that Donald Trump betrayed American democracy. Donald Trump betrayed the system that enabled him to become president of the United States. How close did we come? How close, because I think this is one thing that your book and some of the other recent reporting has made clear that, I mean, I I, I think some of us were alarmed at what was going on, but I don't think any of us in real time really were aware of how serious this effort was. So how close did we come? I think that we got very close to a crisis that would have been far greater than what happened to something that would have actually disrupted January 20th, the, uh, the, the, the actual transfer of power. And I, I think that, and I sketched this out in some detail in the book, that there were a, a few key moments where if people had done what Donald Trump asked them to do, uh, it, it's not clear how we would have gotten our way out. Uh, we would have eventually. Uh, he, what he was, what he was trying to do, was was blatantly illegal. It was unconstitutional. But he wanted uh, early on. I mean, he wanted the Justice Department to to be involved in his scheme to overturn the election. He wanted Barr to order things like the seizing of voting machines in the key elections. He saw his, you know, his great ally on the outside, Michael Flynn, talking about imposing martial law and rerunning the elections. Well, you know, Trump was. It wasn't just a a lunatic ranting on Newsmax. I mean, Trump was, you know, effectively asking the Justice Department to do that. And Barr resisted and and told him no, not only told him no, but came out and said, in fact, there was no fraud anywhere near the scale that would overturn the election. What if it hadn't been Bill Barr? Mm -hmm. What if it had been a clown like Jeffrey Mm -hmm. Clark and had been willing to do that? I mean, that's that's one example. The, The most high profile example is is Pence. And, and I, and I spent a lot of time asking people about this and I never got a good answer. I don't know if you have an answer to this, but what, what if Pence had, we, we can agree he had no authority to throw out electoral right. votes, but what if he had? So what does Nancy Pelosi do? Pick up the gavel and, and start hitting him over the head and people start screaming. And well, I mean, what, what happens? The, uh, yeah. the constitution is very strict about, you know, when certification has to happen, how it's supposed to happen. Uh, that would have been a disruption. They, they would have. They would have. Okay, so you go to the Supreme Court. Okay, so you go to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court rules. I guess what? Suddenly they do an expedited thing, and they say you can't do that. Okay, and then how does the Supreme Court's ruling enforce the Supreme Court? And what army? 
enforces that. So that, that, that's that's just a high profile example. It, what if Pence had done yeah. what Trump wanted him to do? And then, you know, then, then there are that, the that's, that's the literal constitutional crisis. I mean, that's yeah, not and, metaphorical. That's it, right there, right there. And 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 then you know, at, at the state level, I mean, I, I I dig into that meeting on on November thirtieth that Trump had with the leaders of the Michigan state legislature. He summoned them to the Oval Office, and I, I, I try to imagine. To me, it's it's actually one of the one one of the really key moments in all of this. Here you have guys who are Trump Republicans who have been elected by Republican voters who are all in with Trump, and they're summoned to the Oval Office, and Trump has a demand of them to con- reconvene special session, Michigan state legislature, toss out Biden's electoral votes, send in a batch of, you know, Trump votes. And they listen to him. They spend, you know, about an hour in the Oval Office and they walk out and they issue a statement that they had obviously prepared even before they walked in and said, no way, <laughs> we can't do that. That's, you know, to me, that's an act of, I mean, again, they, they had no legal authority to do what he was asking, but what if they had tried? Um, Raffensperger, it's on and on. The boxes. What about the boxes? Well, the boxes. So, you know, again, the Constitution sketches out and, uh, and the Electoral uh, Vote Counting Act uh, uh, sketches out a series of things that have to take place for the certification of the election. And the states send in their electoral votes in a very specific way, signed in a specific way. They have to come via certified mail. Um, they have the, it's the originals that have to be opened and counted, uh, at the, at the allotted time. Well, when the, when the Senate was evacuated, uh, with, with the rioters basically just at the door, uh, somebody, and, and she doesn't want her name to be used, but, but one of the staffers on the Senate parliamentarians office, you know, points to the mahogany boxes that contain the electoral votes and says, we got to get those. And they grab them and they take them with them. What if the rioters had gotten Jeez. a hold of those and destroyed the ballots? I mean, so okay, okay, so the states can send in new ones, or but but the states have to do it by a certain amount of time. I mean, it would have been again another constitutional crisis. There's no direct roadmap as to how it's undone if you don't actually have the originals to count. Well, it, it's it's not frivolous to play this what if game, especially because you wonder about next time. Um, I was actually on a show last night with uh, the Secretary of State in Michigan, who's describing. How uh, in in Michigan you you have uh, big lie advocates that are moving into various election posts all over the state. Um, Trump is aggressively pushing members of you know candidates for state legislature who would not certify the election. I, I think one of the guys who's the new member of the was it the the Wayne County Board of Elections now saying that if. Uh, he'd been in office in 2020. He would not have certified the the Michigan election. So the the what if game becomes important because clearly the next time around, many of those folks that served as sort of the bulwarks of of democracy might not be there anymore. How worried should we be about that? I mean, we should be we should be terribly worried. This is his litmus test, and he is the single most important endorsement in any Republican primary. Uh, and, and his litmus test is, are you with me on 2020? Mm. And, you know, I, look, I, I, the, the one the one hopeful sign, I would say, is that if you look at the profiles in Courage, and I mentioned a few of them, 
for the most part, none of these people you would have expected to be profiles in Courage. Right. Uh, they did the right thing at a key moment. I mean, Pence, who would have thought that Pence would have been, you know, the guy to bravely stand up to Trump, given all that he had done for five years, uh, you know, four or and Bill a half Barr. years. Or Bill Barr. <laughs> I mean, or, 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 or frankly, you know, Brad Raffensperger. Yeah. I mean, he's a, you know, pro-Trump guy in, in Georgia. There's nothing really in his background that suggests that he's going to be the guy that's going to, you know, stand up and say stop. Those guys in Michigan. Uh, you know, I talk about Chris Liddell, who, um, you know, was a guy brought in by Jared, uh, Deputy Chief of Staff in the White House. And he was kind of quietly, without letting Trump know, um, facilitating Biden's transition while Trump was trying to stop it. Hmm. You know, the, 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 and there's nothing in Chris Liddell. I mean, Chris yeah. Liddell's a, you know, he was a through and through Trump guy. He, nobody had served longer in the White House than him. So you argue that the seeds of January 6th were really planted in this period between December 14th and January 6th when Trump decided to stay in office, your words, even at the cost of law, human life, and physical damage to the United States Capitol. So this is the period where Trump made a conscious decision that he was going to stay in office. Yeah, something seemed to change in his view on this. Um in, in in the weeks immediate in the days and weeks immediately after the election, Trump seemed to be almost strategic in what he wanted to do. He actually I, I quote Corey Lewandowski and it's um something Corey told me. Basically that Trump just needs uh to convince his supporters that he didn't really lose. You know? Um that's that's really what it is. You know, he'll leave, he knows it's over, but but he he can't He's he's got this feeling. His entire brand is built on the idea that he's the guy that always wins. So if he lost, the fear is the people with the red hats, you know, run away from him because he's now a loser. I mean, they, you can shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, but you can't lose. Um, <laughs> so you know, so so it was almost like, well, I've got to create enough doubt. I've got to, you know, and 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 Kellyanne Conway told me shortly after the networks all, pro, you know, mm -hmm. proclaimed uh, Biden the, the president elect. I said, will he give a concession speech? And she said to me, oh, he'll give a speech. And he'll basically concede that, he, that the election was stolen. But, but he'll, he'll do what he needs to do. He knows it's over. But that was not the case by the time he got to, uh, to, to, to mid-December. I mean, there was, there was a full-on effort to use every instrument at his disposal. The intelligence agencies, the Pentagon, the Justice Department, um, uh, to his allies in Congress uh, to, to to steal the election. I mean, he he tried to steal the election. So this is the question that I was trying to ask you. Do you think that he woke up on the morning of January 6th thinking that he would be reinstated as president or thinking that, in fact, he could hold on to office? Did he think on, on that morning, did he think this was going to work? I think that when he got, I don't know about when he, when the alarm went off, but I think when he stood out on that stage in the ellipse and he looked out at that crowd, uh, that he thought that this was going to work. And the reason wow. why I think that, wow. the reason why I think that is because when I sat down to speak with him, he has this, you know, he lies all the time. We know that. But there are times when he can be stunningly transparent and, and, and can let you look right into what's in his head. And when I was talking to him about January 6th, he, the, the fondness with which he looks back at that day, um, he, he saw for the first time 
that people from all over the country were coming to do what he complained that his advisors would not do, which is fight for him. You know, that's, that's the complaint that they, he would always do. Like he, you know, going yeah. back, going back to, to the campaign in 2016, I mean, he, if, if he was the access Hollywood thing happens, he's pissed off because nobody's going out on television to defend him. You know, Rudy's volunteering, but nobody else wants to go out and, 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 and defend him. And he says, I need my people out there fighting for me. That's just, that's his constant complaint. You people don't fight for me. And now suddenly you had, and he told me, I mean, it's so crazy. The, uh, he told me that it was the biggest crowd that he had ever spoken before. Uh, and I'm just, I, I, in my, and I'm getting flashbacks to Sean Spicer and the inauguration. Mm-hmm. I'm like, actually, truthfully, you know, Mr. Trump, I didn't say this, but I'm thinking this. It was a big crowd, but your, your, your inauguration crowd wasn't bigger than Barack Obama's, but it was bigger <laughs> than this crowd. You know, I mean, this was big, but it wasn't. And he's like, you know, off the record, there were more than a million people there. Okay, and I, and I, okay. Now I'm recounting an off the record comment because yeah. he later repeated that somewhere else. So I'm not okay. I'm not giving up uh, anything here. But uh, yeah, more than a million people. So I think that as he's looking out, he's thinking that this is going to freaking work. So let's talk about this. You went down to Mar-a-Lago. You had one of these interviews. He's he's given interviews to um, a lot of the people who are writing books uh, because he thinks he can influence them. Um, but but he seems to have been somewhat more open with you. He said yes. things to you that, that didn't appear, including his sort of defense of the, and I think this, you got a lot of attention for this, the whole hang Mike Pence uh, incident. You know, well, people were very angry. It's just completely common sense, all of that. Um, so t- talk to me a little bit about what that was like. You go down to Mar-a-Lago. Were you in the lobby like everybody else? Did you? What was what was the setting? Yeah, set, set the it, theme for us. It was uh, so the date was March eighteenth. So it's almost exactly two months after he leaves office, and um, I'm given the time of five o'clock in the afternoon for the interview. Uh, I get there. Um, I had a rental car, by the way, um, uh, with and because it was COVID, they had this big sticker on the side of the car. So when you open the door, the sticker, you know, the seal is oh, broken, yeah. so you can mm-hmm. know that you know. So it, it, this big, ugly yellow hurt sticker on 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 the side of my uh, whatever the um, <laughs> whatever the the Korean car I had was, uh, and you know I pull up right behind a Bentley and um, <laughs> you know, give give the valet my keys and uh, what's wrong with um, this picture? <laughs> yeah, and I and I walk into I had actually never been to Mar-a-Lago before, uh, but but I, I walk in and you walk in and you get into this beautiful ornate lobby uh towering ceilings um and there's a couch and a chair right in the middle of the lobby and i'm told well this is where this is where it'll happen mr trump will be here um so weird soon he, he shows up at about 5 30 or so and by the time he shows up there's already people coming in for happy hour for drinks on the patio and you know before dinner and we sit down right in the middle of the lobby. I mean, so it, you're on the, display too. On display, I'm definitely part of the uh, part of the entertainment here. <laughs> and what's great is, uh, you know, hour and a half for the actual interview. Uh, he of course starts by offering me a diet coke. He's very gracious. He's very friendly. And as people come in, he keeps on pointing to me and says, "You know, you see this? I've got the great Jonathan Carl here, baby." He goes, "You know, this guy. This is the great." So I'm thinking, okay, I'm just, you know, I mean. This is the guy that called me a disgrace, a third rate. I mean, all this you, stuff. You were but, never going to make. You were never yeah, going to make it. Yeah, never going to make it. All this stuff. But but, um, but he he liked your first book. 
right? I mean, he, he kind of liked you. Yeah, he did. I, I I don't know how much of it I actually read, but but on two occasions he came out publicly during major COVID events uh, in in the White House because my book came out in in late March and saw me and started talking about how the book was good. It was good for me. I was surprised. Mm-hmm. Well, we go back a long way. So yes, uh, you know I've I've had a, this relationship with him. He's attacked mm-hmm. me and savaged me, and mm-hmm. uh, but he's also praised me. He's also you know he's. He, usually calls on me in his press. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a strange relationship, but anyway, I, I, um, had a knew that this was a very different interview. I had a different set of objectives than if I were interviewing him for this week, for instance, if I was interviewing him for, for a spot on ABC with the television cameras rolling and everything else, I knew that he was going to repeat all the lies about the election. And if it were a TV interview, I would have spent a good deal of time pushing back right. and, you know, but I knew that I, I'm not going to quote any of that stuff anyway, so I'm not going to waste time saying, "Actually, sir, they did an audit here." That I mean, I, you're not I, playing I to the cameras here. So. No, I'm not. Yeah. I I, I want to draw out what his what his feelings are. I think that is one reason why the interview ended up being, you know, so much more candid than uh, than, than than any and and the Pence stuff. I mean, I just I was very matter of fact about it. I I just. As you've heard the, the clips, and and, and but the, the conversation actually starts with this discussion of January sixth. Well, what's what's interesting about it? It occurs to me because I was I was uh, sort of under the impression that there was a that there had been kind of a, a slow rolling revisionist history of January sixth as as Donald Trump was you know re rewriting that uh, that that story. But since you talked to him back in March, it was it's now pretty clear that. You know, he he flipped that switch pretty early. That within yeah. two months, he was basically saying, you know, it's completely common sense that people would say hang Mike Pence because Mike Pence. You know, I mean, who would do something like that? Who would actually put these these phony votes up? So he was full on in celebrating January sixth. You you write you were actually taken aback by how fondly Trump remembers the day that that you always remembers one of the darkest I've ever witnessed. That he has a yeah. completely different view of it. And, and you make a really good point about the timeline here because the the revisionism on January sixth in terms of his allies on the hill actually comes much later than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's our, he's there in March. I mean, this is we're 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 just a couple of months removed from the date. We're we're even less removed from the impeachment trial with those dramatic images that were played out on the Senate floor, and nobody else is doing this yet, but he is. Uh, I mean, maybe maybe Alex Jones or whatever, but but I mean, he he's fully there in a way. Though, when you think about it, he was there on the evening of January sixth. The the way this discussion begins is, I ask him, "You tweeted that night. Remember this day forever?" And I just asked a simple question: "What what did you mean by that?" And that's where he gets into the how what how lovely it was and everything else. Now, to be entirely fair to him. In the course of that description of how wonderful the day was, he does add, uh, maybe you know, because he kind of sees my facial expression. Mm-hmm. Well, it was marred a little later on. It was marred, <laughs> and that's that's the only reference to maybe there was something that happened that day, and and maybe it was marred because Pence didn't do what he wanted to do. I don't know oh, what the yeah, mar was. Marred. Was it the assault on the police officers, or was it you know? 
uh, Pence. Well, you do a really masterful job, though, of of making it clear that January 6th was just the culmination of this this really intensive effort. And, you know, you, again, going back to December 14th through January 6th, this, this two, three-week period when there was talk of seizing voting machines, declaring a national emergency, pressuring legislators and in Pennsylvania and Michigan, as you mentioned, uh, the call to the Georgia Secretary yes. of State. You know, and when that didn't work, uh, then you got the John Eastman memo and the Jenna Ellis memo in this attempt to to bully or threaten Mike Pence. Um, I mean, this, you know... This was really um, an all multi-front attack on a presidential election, which, again, the picture is becoming clearer and clearer and clearer. It feels like every week now. And and it's really important, I think, and I I hope that the January 6th committee um, firmly establishes this and makes this their kind of organizing principle. there There was a protest on January 6th. There was a riot and an attack on the Capitol, one, two, and then three, there was an effort to overturn the presidential election and basically d- destroy what is the, destroy American democracy. I mean, that, 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 that's what, because that's what, that's what it's all about is a peaceful transition of power following a presidential election. And, you know, the, uh, the protest, okay, fine. There's nothing wrong with that. The, the, the assault on the Capitol is a crime. The police officers, uh, you know, the Capitol Police getting getting assaulted and attacked, that, that's a serious crime. The breach of the building, the vandalism, that's a crime. But far greater than that is, is, is that third element. And that's what matters here. This was not – that's why when people say, well, what about the protests and, you know, the riots in Portland and all this? No, th- this is not about the riot. It's about the purpose. Right, right. right. For which the riot was done, which is – to overturn our system for the first time since, you know, Adams handed the keys to Jefferson to say, we're not going to abide by the results of a presidential election. And we are going to violently, if necessary, stop it. That's, that's the crime. So at, at the center of, of a lot of what happened in overturning the elections, there's that war room uh, at the Willard Hotel with people like Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, um, Steve Bannon. Um, the Guardian is reporting this morning that sources uh, tell them that, that Trump actually called in uh, to these lieutenants at the Willard um, about ways to delay the certification of the election result. Um, this is a story by Hugo Lowell. Um, it, j- it just came out a little while ago. Uh, Trump's remarks reveal a direct line from the White House and the command center at the Willard. The conversations also show Trump's thoughts appear to be in line with the motivation of the pro-Trump mob that carried out the Capitol attack and halted Biden's certification until it was later ratified by Congress. So give me your sense of th- this story, um, the, uh, Donald Trump calling into the Willard which actually doesn't seem that surprising in many ways. Yeah, to me, I mean, I, I did not know that. And that, that yeah. gets to the point of how important this battle over executive privilege is. I mean, we want to see those call records. We want to see who else he was talking to, what else he was doing. But it's entirely unsurprising that he would be calling in into them. I, and look, I, I, I think there's been a lot made of the war room at the Willard. But again, it's one element. Um, right. it's not like that was like the command center for everything that happened. I mean, that had, you know, that had well, me, some of yeah. some, some of, some of the leading kind of villains in this story, but you know, the, the war room that I care about is the one that was in the dining room 
off the Oval Office where Trump was spending his uh, his day. Do we know how Trump spent his day, hour by hour? Do we have a Do we have a sense of what what the president knew and uh, how vigorously he resisted calls to call off the uh, the attack? He, I, I spent a I spent a, a fair amount of time uh, trying to get to the bottom of exactly reconstructing the minute by minute in the West Wing on January sixth, and. It's clear that he was getting, you know, he was getting bombarded with people basically begging him, get out there, put an end to this. It included not just, you know, I mean, you know, Chris Christie's been out there saying how he was calling and he couldn't get his calls returned. You know, he couldn't get through. Uh, Kevin McCarthy has spoken on on that day. He spoke on the record uh, in an interview on ABC saying that he, and he used the word begging, you know, beg him to, uh, to, to get out there and, and, and do this. And I think he will, McCarthy added. Of course, he eventually does it, but it's entirely, <laughs> entirely insufficient. Uh, but, but he, he was, from everything that I could uh, uh, figure out, he was enjoying what he was seeing. Enjoying. And, and, and he was angry that people were telling him, to do this. And by the way, I was told Dan Scavino was among those saying, you know, sir, we really have to get something out. Um, there's been this storyline about Ivanka and I, and I do know that Ivanka went down at least twice to see her father and Ivanka and people close to Ivanka have felt it, it very important to let everybody know that mm-hmm. she was against all of this. And she was, I, I think that that's heavily overblown <laughs> and a clear, you know, attempt at, at kind of, revisionist history regarding her and Jared, because as I also sketched out, they did nothing to stop any of this as this train was coming down the tracks. And, and, and yet they're, they're always there with their sources close to uh, Jared Novaka saying that, no, you know, in, in private, they were very, very much against this. Please don't, please don't blame them or think that they had anything to do with this. So you mentioned the January 6th committee, yeah. which is compiling lots of evidence. Your book is out. Other books are out. We're getting a clearer and clearer picture of of how of, of all of Donald Trump's efforts to overturn this election, to subvert this election, his support for what happened on January 6th. And I guess the question is, will it matter? You mentioned Mitch McConnell. You mentioned Kevin McCarthy. Sixty percent of Republicans want Donald Trump to run. Um, does any of this change? what's about to happen, which is that Donald Trump may run for president again. And if he does, he'll be the Republican nominee. Does anyone care? I think that the, uh, the challenge facing the committee is incredibly hard high because so much has already been out there. And you mentioned the books. I would also add, you know, the impeachment trial was, was an incredibly powerful moment. And, and, and the fact that you had, you know, seven Republican senators come out and, uh, and, and vote guilty. They did so because they were sitting there watching a riveting and chilling replay of what had happened in the very place that they were sitting. And, uh, and yet, as powerful as it was, it didn't seem to change many Republican minds outside of those senators who, who yeah. had their, you know, their, moment, their, their moment of clarity. But I believe that the January 6th committee has advantages that the impeachment managers did not have. Uh, they have, first of all, time uh, to, to, to build this case and to build this presentation. Uh, they are able to do interview witnesses, which obviously the, uh, the committee wasn't able to do. And 
uh, so much rides on their ability to 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 win this this battle over executive privilege and to have, say they you know, do. will it matter? I guess that so, the, the, so, this so, immunity to information, the, 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 the status of truth, let's say they come up with, they, they dot every I, they cross every T, um, more information comes out linking Donald Trump directly. Does that actually make a difference at this point in our politics? For a good chunk of that 60% that you mentioned who want Donald Trump to run again, to believe the election was stolen, uh, probably nothing matters. But I think that for some, it will matter. If it is done in a, if, if the presentation is compelling, if it is powerful, if it doesn't come across like a democratic hit job, if it is something like our version of the Army McCarthy hearings, and I do know that they, would, would like to do primetime hearings uh, over the mm-hmm. summer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I if, if Democrats can kind of help them, you know, I mean, when you bring up Bill Barr, the mm-hmm. reaction from many Democrats is, oh, that guy's as bad as any of them. And, you know, I can't believe, you know, what he did to Mueller. And, you know, and right. he was, but put Bill Barr on the stand and don't attack him for what he did before the election. Have him speak forcefully about how it's all bullshit, as he told me in an on-the-record interview. But do it for the world to see. Barr has credibility with these people. I mean, Trump's been attacking him, but Barr has credibility. Scavino used to say Barr was by far the most popular cabinet member with the base. So put him in prime time on the stage and have him not just say it's bullshit, but explain how he looked into all these allegations. And it was bullshit and why it's bullshit. And I think that there, there will be minds that are changed, maybe not as many in the short term, but it's also about getting the record straight for history. And, you know, it, it, it matters. So I want to ask you what, what you've been talking about in the last uh, several days, the, the whole question, again, now looking forward as opposed to look, looking back, the real dilemma that the media faces covering Trump if he runs again, this challenge on reporting about him. Um, you were on CNN with uh, Brian Stelter last week, and you said that the media in 2024, assuming that Trump runs, will be covering um, essentially an anti-democratic candidate, somebody running in a system that is trying to undermine that very system, and somebody who is going to be perpetually lying. Uh, look, I, I know we've all been wrestling with this for the last five or six years, Um I think it was obvious pretty early on that Donald Trump had, in effect, sort of broken some of the journalistic models. So how does, and you've given a lot of thought to this, how does the media cover someone like Donald Trump trying to make a his, his revenge return to the presidency 2.0? Well, it's the, the, the first part is the easy part. It's is to say what we won't do or what we shouldn't do as 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 reporters who strive to be to, to, to borrow an old phrase that one of the networks used to use, uh, fair and balanced. <laughs> um, you know, you, you, you don't say, well, you know, candidate Trump today gave a speech where he said that, uh, you know, there was bamboo in the ballots in Arizona. I mean, we, we, we can't do that. We can't just, you know, treat him like he's a normal candidate and report in a cool, factual way what he just said. It's, we can't, you know, the cable networks who in every other election would, 
there's a big speech carried it's entirely live. I, I can't imagine that any network this side of Fox and Newsmax and LAN uh, would cover a Trump speech in its entirety. In fact, I, I don't, I mean, there could even be some discussions at Fox about that. But then the challenge is we're covering a campaign. And as a news organization that is determined to be factual, nonpartisan, obviously, uh, you can't become effectively the cheerleaders for the other candidate. Yeah. Um, we, we, don't, we don't live in a one-party state. Uh, I mean, uh, so I, I, I think it's, I, I don't, I don't have the answer to what the, no, I, I just know. It's that, hard. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's hard because let's say that, you know, the, the media says we're not going to cover him like a normal candidate. We are going to aggressively point out all of his lies and anti-democratic tendencies. Doesn't that also then feed into the, the Trumpian narrative that, uh, opposition the media, party. exactly that the, that the media is the opposition party, that it's fake news and that he just, you know, tells his listeners to, you know, more tightly pack into the alternative reality bubble around him. Yeah, no. That, and I mean, and, I don't and to, to me, it's one of the worst things that he has done and he has succeeded. And, and of course there was fertile ground there for him to, to do this, but he's convinced, what is it, 30, 40% of the country, maybe more, yeah. that, uh, that, that, that the press is entirely partisan and, and as he said, the opposition party. And... So you know, so the, I mean, you, you know, this is the beginning of a conversation, I think, about how the media would handle this. And um, of course, you're, you're familiar with Jay Rosen, who's a journalism professor at NYU and very, very critical of the way the media has handled Trump. And he was he was very impressed with, with your comments and did a whole Twitter thread saying that your comments didn't get enough attention or sparked enough debate. He said that, you know, you're liked, you're respected by your peers. You were the president of the White House Correspondents Association and basically that ABC cannot credibly turn to its existing model for campaign coverage when its chief correspondent has said Trump is an anti-democratic candidate. So I, I guess, you know, here are some of these quotes. So what does the debate look like with Donald Trump in it? Um, yeah, how that's, do you that's, do, that's, you know, what do you I mean, do? It, do, 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 you do two hours of primetime with, with, with a debate where Trump is basically, you know, can, 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 can hold forth and, uh, and repeat his misinformation and disinformation. Um, yeah, exactly. So you have some dazzling details in the book, including that there are unpublished photos from January 6th showing Mike Pence in a garage where he stayed for five hours. Um, I mean, that's an interesting anecdote where Mike Pence refused to get in the car with the Secret Service agents. Um, rather, again, rather extraordinary given Mike Pence's background. And also, you notice that you, know, tr uh, you note that Trump's last tweet before his account was suspended uh, was his announcement he wouldn't be attending Biden's inauguration. But uh, you broke the story that Trump had learned that he wouldn't be invited, which gives you a sense of how things have changed. So yeah. in, in your book, you said that, that Mitch McConnell had planned to write a letter uh, disinviting Trump, having all the congressional leaders saying you're not welcome there. I mean, that's... No, it's it's really to me. It's one of the most interesting and important things that I uncovered in working on this book. I had a kind of a feeling that something was amiss on January eighth when Trump did that last tweet because he says I'm not going to attend something that is 12 days away. Donald Trump never allows the suspense to be lifted. The normal Donald Trump would have been like, "Yeah, maybe I'll go, maybe I won't. Who knows?" You know. Uh, but he suddenly saying. For those that have asked, I'm not coming. What was behind that? 
And what I found is that McConnell, in a rather somber and deadly serious way, had turned to his uh, one of his top aides and said, "We cannot give him an, an opportunity to, to disrupt this mm. Uh, mm. this transition again. We can't give him another opportunity to disrupt Biden's inauguration." And he started the process. It was a process that actually started the evening of January sixth when the Four leaders were out at Fort McNair. They had been taken out uh, as the rioters came in for their safety and and to ensure continuity of government and all of that. And and he he had secured, you know, the Pelosi and Schumer were on board. Uh, the one person who was not on board was McCarthy, and McCarthy was telling him, "I think it's actually really important that he come to the inauguration. It would be a show of unity." I mean, McCarthy's saying this while mm-hmm. the Capitol is basically still in, in, you know, is, is, is being cleaned up from the riot. Um, and McConnell made it clear that he was going to do this even if McCarthy didn't sign on. I mean, that's how strongly McConnell felt about it. If, if it had to be a letter from three leaders, it would be a letter from three right. leaders. And I learned that the White House got wind of this in two ways. One, McCarthy told, uh, told the White House about it. And two, uh, McConnell's chief of staff told Mark Meadows that they were doing this. So Trump knew. Uh, he knew that this was going to happen, and that's why he so graciously said he was not going to come. So Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, was uh, on Meet the Press this week saying that he, you know, obviously that uh, Trump is enjoying this massive grift that he has about the big lie, um, but also predicting that that uh, Trump would not run because if he runs and loses, then the grift goes away. I disagree with that, by the way. The grift is forever. But what do you think? Do you think that Trump runs? I think if you asked me to put money down yeah. on this, I would I would say he's not going to run. But um, Really? But Tell I, me why. But, that surprises me because I'm assuming he is going to run. But you're smarter. Um, you're smarter than me. So why well, do you think he's not going to run? And 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 my my caveat is he he may well run. And this is you know uh, people around him think he's going to run. Say he's going to run. If you talk to people really close to him, they say it's a hundred percent. He's definitely running. He's already running. I think he's not going to run for a couple of reasons. One, um, I I don't think that he wants to face the possibility of losing again. Um, and, uh, he's deluded for sure. Uh, but I think that, uh, even Donald Trump knows, uh, that there is, you know, that, that, that his odds of winning would be remote, um, winning the general election. Mm -hmm. And I also looking at him, looking at his actions, looking at what he's doing, he's focused entirely on the past, not even on, not on 2022 or 2024. It's entirely on the past. He sold or is in the process of selling the uh, Trump International Hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue, mm-hmm. which doesn't sound like that was an important spot mm. for him. Um, mm. And, 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 and that, that does not seem like a guy that's planning on coming back to Washington. Obviously, there are financial reasons, challenges that company's going through uh, that would lead to a sale that would explain it. But I, I still think that, that if he were coming back he or thought he was coming back, he wouldn't be selling that property. And I think that the, 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 the final point is, kind of related to Michael Cohen's point, he will make us think he is going to run uh, until the last minute. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and he and he won't care if that totally screws whoever it would be that would actually be the Republican nominee after. That's all. Um, yeah. You know, but, but and also, you know, I, I'll say something even, that you'll take even more issue with, but I, I, I think that if he runs, it's not a given that he wins the Republican nomination. Really? Okay. Yeah. And I, and I say that because hmm. 
you know, he he's he is so focused on the past. Leaders like McCarthy and now McConnell are, you know, tiptoeing around him because they feel they, you know, they need his voters to do well in the midterms, et cetera, et cetera. But they will all know that he is so toxic to independent voters, um, so toxic uh, uh, to, you know, women, to the suburbs. They, they, they know that he's more toxic now than he was in 2020 uh, because of all that happened uh, January 6th, that he cannot win. So, you know, Republicans do want to win. Yeah, I, I, look, I, I, I just assume that he's going to run and I assume that he'd win the nomination. Beyond that, I just don't know. I think the temptation for him to to get revenge is going to be so great. And if he convinces himself that, hey, I've, 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 I've fixed the system to the point where I, you know, if things go bad for me, I can still get the legislatures in Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin to give me those electoral votes. Who knows yeah. what goes on in his mind? I just, I just don't yeah. know. It's, it's impossible to do. So, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on. Jonathan Carl, the chief Washington correspondent for ABC News, author of the fantastic new book, Betrayal, the Final Act of the Trump Show, one of the essential reads on the New York Times bestseller list right now. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming back on the Bulwark podcast. Great, Troy. Always great to talk to you. Hope to talk to you again soon. Definitely. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.